quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move and fantastic to have you with us this Tuesday, a day of royal importance in the United Kingdom as King Charles III officially appoints Rishi Sunak. As the nation's new prime minister, Sunak warning in his first public comments outside Number 10 Downing Street there of the, quote, profound economic crisis facing Britain. He also vowed to restore public trust after the Liz Trust turbulence, hopes that the new prime minister will provide much needed government stability and, crucially, economic credibility have seemingly becalmed markets for now, with benchmark 10-year UK yields falling further below the 4% level. UK stocks, as you can see there, pulling back a bit in Tuesday's session, but the pound also strengthening by some six-tenths of 1% versus the US dollar. The dramatic action, in fact, taking place in Asia overnight, where the Chinese currency, the yuan, has tumbled to its lowest level in 15 years versus the US dollar. Growing concerns over what Chinese President Xi's consolidation of power might mean for the world's second largest economy. It also follows a major sell-off in U.S.-listed Chinese stocks on Monday. Alibaba and other big names, as you can see on the screen there, falling by some 10% or more. JD.com, they're 13% lower in Monday's session. However, J.P. Morgan countering by suggesting that the Chinese stock sell-off might finally represent a buying opportunity. We'll get the perspective of China watcher, Mandarin speaker and former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd later on in the show. For now, let me give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of price action on Wall Street. A cautious start, as you can see there, to the US trading session on tap as investors await and are awaiting results of king-sized import from the major US tech firms, Microsoft and Alphabet report after the close Tuesday. Monday session saw stocks reach their highest levels, in fact, in six weeks amid hopes that the Federal Reserve may begin slowing the pace of rate hikes, helping the mood. We shall see. High hopes on Wall Street and in the UK, as well as the Rishi Sunak era dawns. And that's where we begin today's show. Regaining trust after trust. That is what the new British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is vowing to do now that he's seated at Number 10 Downing Street. During his first speech, the Prime Minister said he wanted to, quote, pay tribute to his predecessor Liz Truss, but that mistakes were made during her time in office. Some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your Prime Minister in part to fix them. And that work begins immediately. I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. 
And as the opposition Labour Party leader suggested this week, number 10 Downing Street has had a revolving door recently. Liz Truss, the fourth prime minister to resign since that Brexit vote back in 2016. And her time in office, just six weeks. Rishi Sunak will surely be hoping to outlast his recent predecessors. Six weeks and counting, Scott McLean joins us now. Scott, it was a far more confident, I think, and poised version of Rishi Sunak that we saw today, even compared to just yesterday, laying out the challenges, but also admitting that mistakes have been made and a bold plan for the future. The question is, how? Yeah, Julia, I think that Rishi Sunak's mere presence in number 10 Downing Street has done something to calm the economic nerves in this country, largely because the markets know what they're getting, by and large, with a Rishi Sunak premiership. But he also has some eye-wateringly difficult decisions, in the words of the uh, the current chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, to make. And so any kind of honeymoon period that Rishi Sunak may have enjoyed is likely to be a much shorter one because he'll have to get to work right away. There are tens of billions of dollars, uh, tens of billions of pounds as well, as well in government deficit that's going to build up over the next couple of years if nothing changes. And so the question is, where will uh, Rishi Sunak decide to cut? Would it be something like defense and going back on the promise to um, raise defense spending from 3% of GDP target in the next few years to just 2%, which is the NATO standard? Could he go after pensions and have them not rise with inflation as her, as Rishi Sunak's predecessor Liz Truss had promised to do? Could he act some big infrastructure projects? And what might he do about taxes? Surely he's had plenty of indications that he's not going to follow the same direction that Liz Truss has done on taxes. And could he even go after one of the taxes that Liz Truss did manage to keep in place, which is the rise in national insurance? All of these are sort of open questions. Um, there are not many people in this country right now, Julia, who are betting that he'll uh, change his chancellor right off the bat, Jeremy Hunt, the finance minister. All odds are that the, the odds on favorite are that Jeremy Hunt will remain in place and that fiscal update for Monday will go ahead as planned. Uh, it's an open question how much impact Rishi Sunak will have in potentially tinkering with that or changing it. He also has this huge challenge, though, of uniting his own party. And surely today, as we get more news about who the new cabinet will be and how much change there will be within cabinet, we will know how much of an olive branch Rishi Sunak plans to extend to um, the other side of, of his party, those loyal to Boris Johnson or those loyal to Liz Truss. Surely Rishi Sunak wants to reward those who have been loyal to him. But also, uh, he has a long way to go to make sure that his party, his very fractured party, uh, is united going forward. Vitally important week begins today for this government. We shall see. Scott, great to have you with us. Thank you, Scott McLean there. OK, let's move on. Russia will address the UN Security Council today. According to reports, the nation set to claim Ukraine might use a so-called dirty bomb on itself. Russia has insisted without proof that Ukraine plans to detonate an explosive mixed with radioactive material in a so-called false flag operation. Ukraine denies the allegations and fears Russia is creating a pretext for escalation. Nick Robertson joins us now from Kyiv. Nick, great to have you with us. Two things, I think. The first, that Russia has the ongoing ability to address the UN Security Council with their concerns on this. And, and secondly, I think the genuine fear, and you've been discussing this now for, for more than 24 hours, of, of the leadership in the UK, in the United States, in France and in Turkey, uh, of perhaps 
what they perceive Russia to be doing here. Where are we today? You know, both Ukraine and Russia are effectively going to the UN. Uh, the UN Security Council is going to debate uh, Russia's claim that Ukraine is in fact planning this dirty bomb. Ukraine has appealed and offered to, and it appears the International Atomic Energy Agency, the U, effectively the UN's nuclear watchdog, to come here and inspect its two sites. Uh, one is a scientific uh, research center, which has a, a nuclear part of it, and another is a mining facility in the center of the country. Um, Ukraine is throwing the doors wide open to the UN body to do that. Russia is going behind closed doors uh, at the UN Security Council to debate its claims. To the point of the Russians have been speaking a lot over the past few days, atypically to Western uh, officials, specifically the defense ministry, defense minister and the military chief of staff in Moscow, speaking to counterparts in London, Washington, Paris and also uh, in Ankara. This seems to indicate that Russia wants to talk. Now, the question is, what does it want to talk about? Let's lay out what we know. President Putin claims that he now controls these four regions, his annexed, illegally annexed, of, of Ukraine. And essentially, his, he thinks he's done and he wants to try and get out of the war, which is actually losing. So it creates the impression that his defense officials are having these conversations, perhaps to see where avenues about ending the war could go. But on the other hand, they're ratcheting up the rhetoric and the ante with the possibility of a nuclear dirty weapon. Um, they've gone down the road of speaking about the potential for tactical nuclear weapons. They know this issue gets the world's attention. So they're bringing it up again in a different form. I think this is where we're at. Trying to negotiate from a position of strength, but seemingly without it, Nick. Um, we shall see where it goes. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. And just in, a Russian court has rejected U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner's appeal. She was sentenced to nine years in prison for trying to smuggle a small amount of cannabis oil. She was arrested at a Moscow airport back in February, just days before Russia invaded Ukraine. It's not clear whether her lawyers will take the case to higher courts. But moments after the hearing, a senior U.S. diplomat in Moscow continued to push for Griner's release. Ms. Greiner appeared by video in the trial today, uh, so we were not allowed to communicate with her. Uh, therefore, we will continue to request consular access so we can um, be in touch with Ms. Greiner directly regarding her, wel where, her welfare and how she is doing. It is honestly tragic uh, that Ms. Greiner had to spend her birthday last week in a Russian prison rather than at home with her family and on the basketball court with her teammates. Um, nothing in the previous sentence, nothing in the result of today's appeal changes the fact that the United States government considers Ms. Greiner to be wrongfully detained. Perhaps no surprise, the current state of geopolitics is being singled out as the biggest worry for one of the top names in global finance. The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, said events around the world are an even bigger concern than the prospect of a recession in the United States. It's very good news right now in the United States. People see it. Consumers, businesses still spending, still lots of money, a lot of fiscal stimulus. 
uh, but there's a lot of stuff on the horizon, which is bad and could, doesn't necessarily, but could put the United States in a recession. That's not the most important thing for what we think about. We'll manage right through that. I would worry much more about the geopolitics of the world today. He was speaking at the Future Investment Initiative, a major investment conference in Saudi Arabia, on a panel moderated by our very own Richard Quest. And Richard joins us now. Richard, great to have you with us. First and foremost, what a powerhouse of a panel. I mean, you had the CEO of Goldman Sachs, you had JP Morgan, the CEO of Blackstone, just to name a few. Um, no surprise, I think, that the geopolitics was was raised as a dramatic issue. But we're not just talking about a U.S. recession. We're talking about potential for a, a global recession. And that's just one of the issues at the core of this. Yes, because of the black swans. And not just the black swans, but just the deteriorating level of global discourse. Russia, Ukraine, obviously. But that obviously has Russia, EU, U.S., U.S., China, U.S., Saudi, tensions there, um, you, you, France, Australia over AUKUS. There's a lot of geopolitical tensions in the world that are going to make a deteriorating economic situation harder to deal with. Whether it makes it worse is academic. It's going to make it harder to deal with. And that's why uh, David Solomon of Goldman Sachs was pretty clear the economics are not good and a recession is likely. When you find yourself in an economic scenario like this where inflation is embedded, it's very hard to get out of it without a real economic slowdown. So I too am in the camp that we, we likely, likely have a recession in the US, going to have I think most likely a recession, we might be in a recession in Europe. So add a, yeah, a US, a Europe, a UK. In fact, many people here are telling me that they think some of those places are already in recession, whether technical or otherwise. But look, Julia, you know this part of the world. This is really what it is about. It is about people coming here and doing business. And if you just look at this cross-section, you will see major changes. You'll see, for example, the sheer number of women who are here in senior roles, but women who are not covered. There is no requirement for people to be covered. You see Saudi men much more effortlessly when they greet women um, shaking hands. You see a much more relaxed environment. Now, that's not to say that there aren't U.S. businesses here or there aren't U.S. who want to stay away because of other problems with the government. But change is happening, change is incremental, and I think that's what this year is really all about. Richard, I was about to ask you how many people are there. I can just hear the noise and the buzz and the conversation behind you. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. And congratulations once again on a magnificent Thank panel. You. And we shall see more from those conversations later on on Quest Means Business. For now, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, as I mentioned there, later in the show, we'll hear more from Jamie Dimon and part of an exclusive interview with the Saudi ambassador to the United States about tensions with Washington. Now, speaking of global concerns, China's currency, the yuan, fell sharply as investors appear to show deep concern about Xi Jinping's historic third term in power and the fact that officials who back market reforms were missing from his new top team. Chrissy Lustout has all the details.
Investors are still unnerved after that huge and historic sell-off on Monday, and China's currency is feeling the pressure today. On Tuesday, the yuan tumbled to an all-time low on international markets. On the tightly controlled domestic market, the Chinese currency weakened to a new 15-year low. On Monday, the Hong Kong Hang Seng had its worst day since the 2008 global financial crisis. Shares of the Chinese tech giant Alibaba and Tencent as well fell more than 11 percent, wiping off $54 billion from their combined stock market value. Uh, U.S.-listed shares of Chinese tech firms also fell. China's tech industry has been a big target in Beijing's crackdown on private enterprise. And despite the release of a stronger-than-expected GDP report, the markets are spooked by Xi Jinping's power grab. At the 20th Party Congress, the Chinese leader secured that unprecedented term as party leader for the third time. He packed his new leadership team with loyalists, and he pushed out experienced economic policymakers like Premier Li Keqiang, like Vice Premier Liu He, and the central bank governor, Yi Gang. Uh, Justin Tang is the head of Asian research at United First Partners, pinpoints why investors are so concerned, saying this, quote, the concern is the lack of checks and balances in a partisan committee. Mr. Xi has never been supportive of consumer tech stocks, and the market expects that stance to continue or even more restrictions to arise, unquote. Meanwhile, Michael Every, the global strategist at Rabobank, tells CNN, quote, the Chinese yuan saw dramatically lower fixing today and is hitting fresh cycle lows. If politics is now everything and Chinese tech is nothing, then the Chinese yuan is only going one way. Now, so far this year, the yuan has weakened more than 15 percent against the dollar. It's on track to post its worst year in almost three decades. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Mm, but it's really that simple. Straight ahead, foreign investors fleeing Chinese assets as President Xi tightens his grip on power. Kevin Rudd, president of the Asia Society Policy Institute, joins us after the break with his take on what all this means. And port perturbation? Does a slowdown at the busiest port in the United States mean fewer goods heading into the holiday season? What's going on? The Port of Los Angeles Executive Director will join us later this hour. Stay with us. More to come. Welcome back. And a dramatic week in politics in China, leading to a more dramatic hit to financial markets in the region, as we were just hearing. President Xi Jinping formally beginning his unprecedented third term in charge, presenting a leadership team stacked with loyalists and an iron grip on power. Investors and analysts are left questioning the direction of policy going forward, the potential negative impact on the economy and the risk of further widening of the diplomatic divide with the West. The Chinese currency, the yuan, tumbling to its lowest level in 15 years, while stocks in Hong Kong had their worst day since November 2008 during the financial crisis. It all comes as the U.S. discusses a possible meeting between Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping at the G20 next month. What does this all mean? Well, former Australian Prime Minister and President of the Asia Society Policy Institute, Kevin Rudd, joins us now. He's also the author of The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China. Kevin, always fantastic to have you on the show. I think the general consensus is this is going to mean far greater state control, but the investor response has been resolute and uh, utterly negative. There's always... Um, devil within the detail. What's your take of what we've seen this week? 
Well, I think one of the reasons you've started to see some bearishness in markets towards the Chinese economy is because Xi Jinping has been on a long trajectory of moving the center of gravity of Chinese economic policy towards the Marxist left. This big trend began after the 19th Party Congress five years ago, uh, a reassertion of the role of state-owned enterprises, more restrictions for the private sector, particularly in tech and in property and in private education, and also the emergence of new instruments of industrial planning, new doctrines of national economic self-sufficiency, new concerns in China itself about the national security reliability of its own supply chains. And on top of that, a new doctrine of common prosperity. Put all those things together and you've had a relatively negative response from the Chinese private sector itself, which represents some 61% of GDP. With the 20th Party Congress, what Xi Jinping did in terms of this pre-existing ideological direction was not course correct back to the market and away from the party and the state. In fact, he doubled down, and you see that across the ideological pages and the economic uh, pages of the Congress report. Add to that the changes to his economic team and the loss of Li Keqiang, of Wang Yang and Hu Chunhua and the arrival of um, the new four, uh, then I think there is a question that uh, analysts will pose, which is the ideology, ideology looks increasingly problematic from a market perspective and from a private sector perspective domestically. And furthermore, you've appointed a team with not a significant economic track record themselves. And how are they going to therefore sprinkle fairy dust across the top of this in order to rehabilitate Chinese growth levels? I think that's what's causing concern out there in markets. Is it is it short-sighted to your point? And, and I understand all the concerns you mentioned, but if I, I look at some of the names that are now joining the uh, Politburo Standing Committee, and we're talking um, the potential future Premier Li Chang, uh, Li Si, Tai Chi, I've got all the names and I can give people an indication of, of who I'm talking about. And you have to forgive my... Um, my pronunciation, because I know you're a fluent Mandarin speaker, so you can correct me uh, afterwards. You're but doing pretty well. Not actually. bad. I, I've <laughs> not, 10 not bad. Um, but they, they they join after heading up rich provinces where uh, the focus yeah. on growth was a top priority and a way that their performance was um, judged. They understand the importance of growth, particularly at a time when they have such high youth unemployment in China. It's okay shifting ideologically towards the left, but if you don't have growth in China, if you can't provide the jobs that are required, um, the dangers, the internal dangers, surely are increasingly significant too. If you look at the four new additions to the Standing Committee of the Politburo, uh, and you've mentioned them with uh, near-perfect pronunciation, my friend uh, Li Chang, (laughs) uh, who is uh, likely to be the new Premier, He goes back to his days of uh, working politically with uh, Xi Jinping in Zhejiang when uh, Xi Jinping was party secretary in Zhejiang. If you look at um, uh, Tsai Chi, for example, that relationship goes back even much earlier to Xi Jinping's days in Fujian province when he was party secretary. And Tsai Chi has been subsequently promoted to take over as party secretary of the Beijing municipality, plus on top of that being deputy head of the National Security Commission of the party centre. If you go to Ding Suixiang, uh, who is the um, uh, head of the general office uh, of uh, Xi Jinping at the centre, in other words, he's chief of staff, that relationship goes back to their time working together when Xi Jinping was party secretary in Shanghai. 
and the Xi, a much uh, older set of um, family-based connections with the Xi family. Put all those things together, I think the overall analytical call is that you don't have among them a leader who has been responsible for the tasks of macroeconomic management. Yes, a number of them have been in significant provincial positions, but running a province, a bit like running a state in the United States of America or Australia for that matter, where the emphasis is on how do you roll out your infrastructure, how do you get major projects going, is a somewhat different set of skills to those required in managing a macro economy where you're dealing with monetary policy, fiscal policy, as well as long-term productivity growth and the drivers of productivity growth and the overall balance between public and private sector. It's a different set of skills. So therefore, I think that's why there is some skepticism. Of course, these individuals may well prove us wrong in their substantive performance, but uh, at a first call, it's quite a different set of um, CVs that they bring to the table. Yes, and far more micro focus and, and greater control and therefore perhaps having a negative impact on growth because that's the, the assumption that's at this stage that's being made. I think, and I want to get your wisdom on what this means more broadly for, for diplomacy. Of course, there's talk about a potential first meeting in person between US President Joe Biden and, of course, President Xi Jinping as well. And Already, I've seen people talking about the importance of Taiwan and their independent stances on that. But surely, by far, the bigger question at this moment is China's stance towards Russia. And at a time when we're actually seeing China warning its own citizens now that remain in Ukraine to leave, there's a palpable perception, perhaps, and, and perhaps you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that actually China's concerned about the, the nuclear risk or the greater escalation even further than we're seeing in, in the war at this moment. What's your sense? How concerned are China and the Chinese government about nuclear weapon threat? Well, uh, an excellent question. Um, Julia, can I tie off quickly on the earlier conversation on growth mm. with one final thought, which is, um, to be fair to the Chinese system, what the document also contains for the 20th Party Congress um, is a preoccupation with better income redistribution within the country. Some call this common prosperity, but it's a wider remit than that. I think driving it is also a macro concern to do what can be done to increase um, individual consumption levels within China by acting more to support families with childcare costs, aged care costs, education costs, and frankly, to deliver more into the pocketbooks of uh, average Chinese in order to lift consumption. Easy to say, harder to do, and that of itself could have an impact in terms of business confidence on the way through if you change the profits wages share. But that at least is a thematic worth examining further in the 20th Party Congress report. On the national security questions you've just raised, can I say this, that... Um, you're right, uh, China, in my judgment, would be fundamentally concerned about the real-world risk of Vladimir Putin uh, making real his threats on multiple occasions to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in the battlefield in Ukraine, given how bad his military, badly his military campaign is unfolding in that country. The real question in the international community, however, is this. Uh, what leverage is China currently applying uh, to uh, the Russian system to prevent Putin from doing that? As we all know, uh, Russia now, because of the invasion of Ukraine, 
really has nowhere else to go in the world uh, in the future for diplomatic, political and economic support other than Beijing. So the real question is, um, will China now deploy um, whatever leverage it has in Moscow to say very directly at a leader to leader level, at a military to military level, and more broadly um, uh, through public diplomacy uh, to cause uh, Putin to step back from the brink if in fact he is considering the actual use of these weapon systems. If he went ahead and used it um, and China had not, as it were, publicly made efforts to prevent him from so doing, this will also rebound significantly in terms of global perceptions of China's ultimate level of comfort with Vladimir Putin's uh, military and political behaviour in the world. So I have about 30 seconds to answer the question that you posed to yourself. Now is the time with, with the power that he's gained and with the national interest of his own to intervene directly and, and utilise that power? Absolutely. I wrote an opinion piece in yesterday morning, South China Morning Post to that uh, effect, knowing that that paper is often read in the central Chinese leadership. It's time for China to act. The stakes are very high. And it won't just be catastrophic for Europe, Ukraine and the world to break this effective nuclear ban, which we've had since 1945. Um, But China will be criticised for not having used its equities in Moscow to prevent it. China needs to act. Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia and President of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Sir, always a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. And uh, just a reminder, his latest book, The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the United States and Xi Jinping's China, available now. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running on Wall Street this Tuesday and the major averages rebounding after a weak pre-market session as investors weigh a deluge of important corporate earnings and results looking pretty good overall. Let me take you through some of those that we've seen. Coca-Cola raising its full-year guidance. It's been able to rise pra- raise prices without impacting sales. However, higher costs also hitting the bottom line. At manufacturing giants General Electric, 3M and office equipment firm Zero. Profit at Carmaker General Motors beating expectations. It says that supply chain issues at its manufacturing facilities are finally easing. That's good news. And ties to our next guest. The Port of Los Angeles says it's winning the Great Supply Chain Challenge 2, the largest container port in the United States, offering an encouraging outlook on the shipping bottlenecks that have helped fuel the U.S. inflationary crisis. Now, as this graph dramatically shows, the daily backup of container ships at the port has virtually disappeared as import volumes soften. In fact, September was the weakest month for inbound shipments at the port since 2009, with imports falling some 26%. Now, some of this is due to ongoing labour negotiation issues, leading to cargo being redirected to other ports and also weakening U.S. consumer demand. To give us the context, Jean Soroka, the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles, joins us now. Jean, welcome to 
rainy, foggy New York with your amazing suntan. As always, it's great to have you here.、Um, when I saw these statistics, my first reaction was wow. And I'm glad to have you with us to get context. What part of this slowdown is because retailers have pre bought early to avoid not having goods on the shelves ahead of the holiday season? What part of it is rerouted traffic? Because of the labour negotiations that you're undergoing, and what part is slowing consumer demand? What's your, what's your view? Well, good morning, Julian. It's great to be here in New York. Look at a 20% drop over the past two months, and it's broken down into two segments. About 12 percentage points is cargo that's moving to the East and Gulf Coast, premeditated by importers because they were worried about protracted labor negotiations and potential disruptions. None of that has happened yet. Both sides have put out two media releases saying that they won't cause any problems while they're at the table bargaining for this all important contract. The other Piece, about eight percentage points are cargo that came in earlier than normal. June and July were our peak months because importers did not want to get their cargo caught up in delays and make sure that they had it going through the omni channel distribution network. We've also seen some bulkier cargo, appliances, sporting goods, and furniture taper off just a little bit. Those one time purchases during the pandemic don't repeat themselves. Okay. And so, What we didn't talk about there was some inherent slowdown in purchasing and, and a lessening of, of demand. Gene, is there any sense, because we keep searching around for signs of sort of pre recessionary behavior or recessionary behavior, are you saying you're, you're simply not seeing that? It's, it's other things going on. That's right, Julia. What we've seen for July, August, and September, the consumer buying has been about flat, which is good because it's still elevated. Above pre pandemic days. Yet we're all watching this very closely in the face of 8.2% inflation and higher producer wholesale prices as well. Yeah, flat in this case, when you're talking about the inflation rates that the, the country's facing, is,、um, is a positive, I think. You mentioned you've sent out these two press releases that have said, look, we may be negotiating. And we're talking of what, 22,000 dock workers are involved with this union across 29 West Coast ports,、um, 70 terminals, I believe, that are involved as well. I mean, it sounds dramatic on paper. Is that message getting through? And, and are people saying, fine, we may have redirected some of the traffic that we've,、um, we've planned over the past couple of months? We're going to redirect that back through the Port of Los Angeles now. Is the message getting through? We've got to keep bringing that message、mm-hmm. to the import and export community because the cargo volume is not showing that. Unfortunately, we've got backups in. Gulf Coast and East Coast ports, which does nothing for us as a nation from a competitiveness standpoint. We've got to make sure we bring certainty to the supply chain and keep this cargo moving fluidly as we head into the all important retail season and the harvest season for our American agricultural farmers. If, let's say, you did manage to get that message across and we did see the pickup in, in deliveries, can you cope with it? Because we showed that chart and it showed that the backlog that we've been talking about now, you and I, for, for many months is, is virtually disappeared. Is that just a product of the slower level of deliveries? Or if they did pick up again, would you be able to handle it? 
I believe we can. We've learned so much over the last couple of years, Julia. We brought those ships that were backed up from 109 vessels down to single digits, all while moving near record amounts of cargo in the first seven months. Only the last two months have we seen a softening in the marketplace. So we've been able to move the containers out at a higher velocity than ever before through our partnerships with importers, exporters, and our service providers. The Los Angeles Marine Terminals have done a tremendous job. That cargo coming back, all of our key indicators shows we can handle a large surge here before the holidays and help our retailers and others get product to market. Good to know. In the past, I've also asked you about trade between the United States and China. And we talked amid the lockdowns in China, the emphasis that the authorities put there on keeping those ports open and working and ensuring uh, deliveries and exports were taking place. What are you seeing, Gene? Because there's clearly a lot of focus on the numbers that are coming out from China and the obvious slowing that we've seen in the economy. And obviously, they're still running the zero COVID policy across the country where necessary. What does the data tell you? The prioritization is still there. Folks like Yan Jun, who runs the Shanghai Deep Seaport, Nangshan Deep Seaport outside of Shanghai, has been doing a tremendous job, as have ports in Ningbo and South China. 60% of our trade, imports and exports, emanates to and from China. Really important market. Now, with Xi Jinping taking for a third term, there will be a lot of eyes on how we can continue to fuel that export market for China, of which we're the biggest buyer here in the United States. So there's a lot to continue to work on keeping that supply chain fluid between the two largest trading nations and biggest economies is key for success. Mm. But you're not worried. I mean, clearly, if you look at the financial markets just in the last week or so, there's there's real concern that a greater level of control for Xi Jinping is going to mean uh, policies that, that result in the suppression of growth. Any sense from you or or the conversations that you're having that that will have a significant impact from you? Because as you point out, I mean, 60 percent of of trade volumes is is huge. This has huge import for you. It remains to be seen, of course, with the information that's come out of the meetings over the weekend and into the early part of the week. Exports play a huge role in China's GDP. And I know that's very important after having worked there on the ground for many years living in Shanghai. But also American companies, both on the import and export side of the ledger, have been reevaluating their supply chains, whether it's moving to other nations in Southeast Asia for production and sourcing, bringing cargo back, manufacturing to near and, and onshore locations. All of that's being evaluated to make sure that we have resilience in the supply chain. This is not just one flip of a switch. Many of these relationships on sourcing from China have been built over the past three and four decades. More and more will come of this, and we'll have to see how this supply chain can continue to modernize. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear just your thinking now, particularly in a sort of ending of and post-COVID world, the resilience of supply chains is, is, is so important, and we're talking about it more than ever before, which can only be a good thing. Um, Jean, once again... Great to have you in New York. Thank you for joining the show, and we'll speak again soon. Jean Soroka there, the Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles. Thank you, sir. Okay, up next, we return to Riyadh. Find out what the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase thinks about strains between the United States and Saudi Arabia over energy.
Welcome back to First Move. The cost of living crisis, gas prices, inflation have become pivotal issues in the U.S. midterm elections. The decision by OPEC Plus to cut oil production has therefore further strained ties between the United States and huge oil producer Saudi Arabia. But speaking at the FII Institute meeting, J.P. Morgan's CEO Jamie Dimon said disagreement between longstanding allies should be expected and can be overcome. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States have been allies for 75 years. I can't imagine any allies agreeing on everything and not having problems. They'll work it through. And I'm comfortable that folks on both sides will work it through and that these countries will remain allies going forward and hopefully help the world develop and grow properly. And CNN's Becky Anderson recently spoke with Princess Rima, Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United States, about the kingdom's increasingly rocky relationship with Washington. His part of that exclusive interview. It's clear we're at a point of disagreement. Many people have tried to politicize this, but you're hearing it from the horse's mouth. This is not political. This is purely economic, based on the expertise of 40 or 50 years of mapping and trends. We do not engage in the politics of anyone. We engage simply as a balancer and a stabilizer of the economy through the energy market, as we've done historically. Well, let me provide as a counter argument to that the White House perspective. The White House has accused Saudi of siding with Russia. Is the kingdom siding with Russia? You know, the kingdom has a policy of engaging with everybody across the board, those we agree with and those that we disagree with. The relationship that we had with Russia is what allowed us to free prisoners of war, two Americans, five Brits, one Croat, and a selection from other countries. We view our role as a mediator and a communicator. We've supported Ukraine humanitarianly. We have given over 400 million. We collaborated with Ukraine and Poland to give 10 million to allow for the refugees that were coming out of the Ukraine and spilling into Poland a safe landing. That's what we do. That's the value of our engagement. Is it siding with Russia? No. Have you personally spoken to the administration about this? What's the communication I deal very regularly with the administration, and frankly, it's an administration that I have profound respect for. Mm -hmm. I have only had the most gracious and direct communication, as we should. That's how partners communicate with each other. And by the way, it's okay to disagree. We've disagreed in the past, and we've agreed in the past. But the important thing is recognizing the value of this relationship. Can the kingdom do without a relationship with Washington? (laughs) Becky... The world can't do without a relationship with the United States of America. Have no doubt, the United States is the United States. For 80 years, it has been our strategic ally. For 80 years, it has been our partner. You know, I hear a lot of people talk about reforming or um, reviewing the relationship with the kingdom, and I think, actually, that that's a positive thing. Mm. This kingdom is not the kingdom it was five years ago. It's not the kingdom it was 10 years ago. So every piece of analysis that existed is no longer relevant. We are a young population. We have young leadership. We have an aspiration and a goal to engage with the world in a way we never did before. And you can watch the rest of Becky's interview with the ambassador on Connect the World after this show at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. in Riyadh. Okay, coming up after the break, a near $200 million mistake. Adidas unties itself from Kanye West following anti-Semitic remarks. The sportswear giant throwing in the towel. The details next.
Welcome back to First Move. Adidas cutting ties with Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. This after he made anti-Semitic remarks in recent weeks. Christine Romans joins us now on this story. Christine, fantastic to have you with us. Um, I'm afraid it's not a better story, to be honest. This partnership has been under review since October when I believe he wore a White Lives Matter shirt in public. Yeah. For me, this the, the latest comments are a question of where free speech ends and where hate speech begins. This is clear cut, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think it is. And, you know, and the company has been criticized for taking too long to cut mm. ties. But in a statement um, released today, they said after a thorough review, they've taken this decision to terminate him. So they've been looking at this uh, for some time. They don't tolerate anti-Semitism. And it is not in the, you know, the core beliefs of, of the company and how it treats its employees and how it expects its, its customers to be treated here. It's interesting to me because, you know, he's a rapper, a musician, but um, his shoe line that he's had with the Adidas since 2013 has really built a lot of his wealth. I mean, Forbes put him, puts his net worth at $2 billion and says that much of that is from his, uh, his work with Adidas. And Adidas pointing out, you know, how deep these ties run as well in its statement saying they're going to take a financial hit for this and trying to quantify that for their investors and for the public, a short-term negative impact of up to 250 uh, million euros on net income um, for 2022, given the high seasonality, they say, of the fourth quarter. So a big hit there. We've also been watching uh, Mr. West sort of pull himself away from many of his other strategic alliances. You know, back in September, he received a letter from J.P. Morgan Chase saying that he would need to find uh, a new bank account after he had been on CNBC sort of publicly firing J.P. Morgan. Uh, and you've got his, his, his partnership with Gap, which unraveled really about a month ago. And that was Ye saying that uh, Gap wasn't fulfilling its end of the bargain, different, you know, different strategic sort of ideas. So one after another, more recently, you're seeing these brands back away from him because of um, things he said, hateful things he said. But his sort of business life has been unraveling here for some, for some weeks now. Yeah. And your monetary value doesn't protect you. I mean, on that infamous podcast, quote, I can say anti-Semitic S-H-I-T and Adidas cannot drop me wrong. Right. Got to go. Christine Romans, thank you so much for nice that. Nice to see you. Now, as you've heard, the UK's new prime minister says he's the man to lead the country out of the unprecedented challenges it's facing. Rishi Sunak laid out his leadership vision just hours ago at Downing Street. But before that, a vision of a different kind graced the skies of the United Kingdom. Fireworks in the night sky over the English city of Southampton. It was to celebrate Diwali, the Hindu festival that symbolizes the power of light over darkness. This year's show was extended in honor of Prime Minister Sunak becoming the UK's first Hindu leader. The display was organized by a temple co-founded by his grandparents. And across the Atlantic, Joe Biden also took part in Diwali festivities and hailed the groundbreaking nature of Prime Minister Sunak's win. As my brother would say, go figure. <laughs> and the Conservative Party expected to become the prime minister, I think, tomorrow when he goes to see the king. Pretty astounding. A groundbreaking milestone, and it matters. It matters. And he was right. It was today. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.